of the Apostles, chapter 28. Winter on Malta. Rome at last. Final appeal to the Jews. Acts 28, verses 1 to 10. Winter on Malta. The parable of our voyage to the kingdom continues as the events on Malta evolve. The island became part of the Roman Empire in 218 BC and was part of the province of Sicily. Yes, they all made it safely to shore, and the barbarous inhabitants showed no little kindness to the exhausted, shivering and starving survivors. Despite the rain, the inhabitants managed to light a fire to warm them. Malta was indeed a safe refuge. <clears throat> the word barbaros, authorised version barbarous, simply means that Greek was not their native tongue. The word is onomatopoeic, that is, their language, which was a Phoenician dialect, sounded to Greeks like ba-ba-ba, though some must have known Greek or Latin. Ever helpful, Paul set about gathering sticks for the fire. A poisonous snake, the Greek word is echidna, came out of the bundle of sticks and fastened itself onto Paul's hand. The Maltese, seeing this, said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. The islanders were referring to the goddess Dike, the daughter of Zeus, who was the goddess of punishment and revenge. Paul merely shook the snake off into the fire and felt no harm. Whilst there are no poisonous snakes on Malta today, it is unlikely that the natives were mistaken. Any poisonous snakes would have been eradicated from the small islands of Malta over the centuries that have elapsed to the present time. When Paul neither swelled up nor fell down dead, the islanders changed their minds and said that he was a god. Paul felt no harm, a phrase that in the allegory symbolises the immortal state when the saints will be as gods, Elohim. In continuing the allegory, we're reminded of the incident of the lifting up of the brazen serpent by Moses in the final year of Israel's exodus. That incident anticipated the crucifixion of Jesus, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John three fourteen to 15 and Numbers 21. After Christ's coming, however, it is the serpent power that will be destroyed in the fire of judgment. As a result, in the refuge of the kingdom, the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den, Isaiah tells us in chapter 11, verses 8 to 9. Again, dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord, in Isaiah 65, verse 25. Subsequent events would recompense their kindness, for the Lord had said of righteous nations, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in, naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came to me. Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Matthew 25, verse 32 to 40. Like the sick on Malta, the nations will be healed when Christ and his saints are honoured. Verses 7 to 10, kindness is returned. Publius the chief, the Greek protos, man of the island, Luke's term is proved correct by a first-century Greek inscription found on the island, lodged us, that is, Paul, Luke and Aristarchus, in his own house. Since Paul had been thought of as a god, this hospitality for three days is not surprising, but, no doubt, very welcome after the arduous voyage. Whilst in Publius' home, Paul went into the room of Publius' father and, after prayer, laid his hands upon him, after the manner of Paul's own healing by Ananias in Acts chapter 9, verse 17, and healed him of fever and dysentery. As a consequence, others on the island who were diseased also came to Paul to be healed. Julius would observe all this with awe and wonder. How true were the words of the Lord! These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing it shall not hurt them. They shall lay their hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Mark 16, verses 17 and 18. As at Lystra, Paul would make the most of the opportunity thus presented to introduce the true God, as in Acts 14, verses 8 to 20. When Paul and his companions left the island three months later, the people honoured them, probably with money, if you compare Matthew 15, verses 5 to 6, and showered them with gifts. After all, they had lost everything in the shipwreck. Luke does not say, but a community of believers was surely left behind to continue the work begun. Acts chapter 28, verses 10 to 16, from Malta to Rome. After three months on the island in early February 1860, though it was still risky for sailing, the party boarded another grain ship of Alexandria that had managed to ride out the storm and find shelter in Valletta Harbour. The captain obviously thought conditions favourable for the short crossing of about 90 miles, 144 kilometres, to Syracuse in Sicily. Syracuse was the centre of government for the Roman province that included Malta. Luke notes with interest that the sign of the ship was Castor and Pollux. Dioscuroi, the twin sons of Zeus, or Jupiter. It had been dedicated to these twin gods who were thought to rescue sailors in distress. Their sign was the electrical phenomenon known as St. Elmo's Fire. 
but they were not equal to Paul's God. After waiting three days for a favourable wind, they sailed another 70 miles, 112 kilometres, to Regium, on the toe of Italy, on the Strait of Messina. The strait was a mere seven miles, 11 kilometres wide at this point. A day later, blessed with a south wind, they passed through the hazards north of Regium and made the 180 miles, 288 kilometre journey to Puteoli in two days. Puteoli. This was Rome's principal port for importing grain from Egypt and North Africa. It was situated on the Gulf of Naples in sight of Mount Vesuvius. Naples, then called Neapolis, was another port a few miles south. A third port, Camille, was to the north. The port of Puteoli lay behind a breakwater built in the first century, nearly a quarter of a mile long. It also had a lighthouse. The wharves were said to be one and a quarter miles long, that's two kilometres. The city itself had an estimated population of up to 100,000, with a large Jewish community. Here Paul and his companions found a number of brethren who invited them to stay a week with them before travelling on to Rome. It is probable that Julius and Paul's guards were included in the invitation, which was accepted. No doubt Julius was impressed by the genuine love shown to Paul and his companions by these lovers of hospitality, who were not forgetful to entertain strangers, even though one of them was a prisoner. In Titus 1 verse 8, Romans 12 verse 13, and Hebrews 13 verse 2. How refreshing for Paul after six months' isolation and privation. And thus to Rome we came, though it was still 130 miles, 208 kilometres away along the Via Appia. In the meantime, the brethren in Rome had been advised that the Apostle was on his way. The brethren came to meet the party, some to Appii Forum, about 40 miles or 64 kilometres south of Rome, and others to three taverns, 33 miles, 53 kilometres from Rome. In those days, the Forum of Appius could be reached by canal. Passengers travelled on a barge pulled by a mule, saving them a strenuous walk. Strabo mentions this in his geography. Though it is unlikely that the soldiers were able to enjoy this advantage. When Paul had written to the saints in Rome, he had said that he wished to be comforted together with them by their mutual faith, in Romans chapter 1, verse 10 to 12. His wish was now to be fulfilled beyond his expectations. These brethren had walked a long way to comfort and support him, and now they had to straightway turn around and walk back again. That's agape love in action indeed. Paul thanked God and took courage. Note that he thanked God first. He always saw beyond his present difficulties to see that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God, as we read in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 1. There was such joy and love. 
yet Paul had never been to Rome before. Julius would be amazed and impressed. There was nothing like this in paganism, or even in what passes today for Christianity. No doubt Julius became a convert and spoke for Paul before Caesar. Consequently, Paul was able to write from Rome to the Philippians that, I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace, the praetorium, and in all other places, and many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident in my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This he says in Philippians 1, verse 12 to 14. Greetings could even be sent from Caesar's household. Philippians 4, verse 22. May Paul's example and that of other faithful brethren ever inspire us to preach the word, whether in season, out of season, as Paul says in the second of Timothy, chapter 4, verse 2. Rome. Rome by this time was a cosmopolitan city with a population of about one million people, drawn not only from Italy, but also from all parts of the far-flung empire. It was the seat of the emperor and of the senate who together governed the empire. Romans worshipped their own numerous gods, including the goddess Roma, as well as those of Greece and some Asian, Persian and Egyptian deities. The city was built upon seven hills by the river Tiber, about 15 miles, 24 kilometres from the sea. The city had been full of slums with narrow, dirty streets. But Gaius Octavius, who by 19 BC had achieved unrivalled power and renamed himself Augustus, meaning sacred or revered, from the Latin word for reading divine signs, hence augury, had replaced the city of brick with magnificent buildings of marble. He would oversee Rome's extraordinary transformation from the dirty, chaotic rabbit warrens of the late Republic into a capital city worthy of a Mediterranean-wide empire. This from ancient Rome by Simon Baker. Even so, only a few in Rome enjoyed its wealth. Most people in Rome were either very poor, dwelling in tenement buildings of three to five storeys, or slaves. As many as 200,000 of the poorest relied on government welfare. This from Acts by Clinton E. Arnold, page 266. As might be expected, it was an idolatrous and grossly immoral city that certainly justified its allegorical name in the apocalypse of Babylon the Great. By the time of Paul's visit, Nero was emperor due to the scheming and murder of her husband, Emperor Claudius, arranged by his mother, Julia Agrippina. She had been Claudius's fourth wife. When she had married the Emperor Claudius, she brought her son from her first marriage, the future Nero, so that she could control him. She reminded her son that she had set him on the throne by murder, etc. 
This gave Nero a deep sense of insecurity and fear that led him to murder his mother and eventually brought about the collapse of his regime. This in Ancient Rome by Simon Baker, Part 3, Nero. There was a large community of Jews in Rome, possibly up to 30,000, and anti-Semitism was rife. Tiberius had expelled the Jews from Rome in AD 19, and Claudius expelled them again in AD 49, eight years before Paul wrote his letter to the Roman Ecclesia, and eleven years before he arrived. Many Jewish slaves, brought by Pompey in BC 63, had been freed and granted Roman citizenship. Most of the Jews lived in a Jewish ghetto across the river Tiber in a section called Trastevere, where, Philo records, they met in houses of prayer, prosuke, synagogues. Paul in Rome Paul arrived in Rome in AD 60. The Ecclesia there probably had its beginning with those who had been in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost, when the Apostles had received the Holy Spirit. The Ecclesia was renowned for their faith, we find in Romans 1 verse 8 and other places. So Paul, who had prayed that he may come to them with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed, Romans 15 verse 23 and 30 to 33, came to the capital of the empire to argue the case for recognition of the gospel of Jesus Christ before the highest authority in the world. The other prisoners were delivered safely at last to the Stratopedarch, chief administrator of the Praetorian Guard. But Paul was allowed to dwell by himself with the soldier that kept him. This was probably close to the barracks, and so prevented him being accommodated by one of the saints elsewhere in the city. Paul was bound, but the word of God was not bound. We see Ephesians 3 verse 1 to 13. He still made converts, Onesimus, the runaway slave, for example, whom he had begotten in his bonds. Philemon verses 9 to 16. He rejoiced in his sufferings for the Colossians, and filled up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the Ecclesia, Colossians 1 verse 24. From Rome Paul wrote to the Philippian brethren, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, by the forgiveness of our sins, be thus minded. Thus Paul wrote in Philippians 3 verse 8 and verses 14 to 15. Paul had no family life, no home of his own, no freedom, no holidays, no little treasures collected over a lifetime full of happy memories. And now, as an old man, he could not retire. He kept going as if he were a young man in the prime of life. What an example!
and how we benefit by his letters written from prison. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and from prison at Caesarea, Hebrews. Acts chapter 8, verses 17 to 31, final appeal to the Jews. Having settled in and recovered from his journey, after three days, Paul called for the leaders of the Jews from the various synagogues to come to him to discuss his pending trial. The leaders, having assembled in his room, Paul summarises the events that led to his arrest, his trials and his appeal. He emphatically denies that he has done anything contrary to the people or the customs of their fathers. This would be true because the fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were never under the law. Consequently, he uses the significant phrase, For the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. On the other hand, Paul is careful not to accuse the Jews either. So at least they did not have to fear that Paul, a Roman citizen, might accuse them, leading possibly to their banishment from Rome again, as in the time of Claudius. The phrase, hope of Israel, is taken from Jeremiah 14, verse 8, where it refers to Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Saviour thereof in time of trouble. As such, the expression refers not merely to the promises, but to God himself and to his whole logos, or purpose. This is he who chose Israel to be his peculiar treasure, and who gave us a Saviour, Jesus Christ his Son. Of this just God and a Saviour, Isaiah adds, In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel, Jew and Gentile, be justified and shall glory. And so all Israel shall be saved. In his rediscovery of the truth of God's word, Brother Thomas came across the phrase, We are saved by the hope, Romans 8 verse 24. When he had found the answer to the question as to what this hope is, without which we cannot be saved, he finally separated from Campbellism and was baptised. For there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Ephesians 4 verses 4 to 6. The hope is Yahweh, Jeremiah 14 verse 8. But it contains the promises made to the fathers and includes the resurrection and restoration of Israel when Messiah comes again. As Paul tells us in Acts 26 verses 6 to 8 and other places. Luke, of course, only gives us a summary of what Paul actually said. Surprisingly, there were no letters about Paul received by these leaders of the Jews in Rome nor were there any witnesses. We do not know why the rulers in Jerusalem seemingly had forgotten Paul. A number of suggestions had been made, and we cannot be certain why the matter was not followed up by them. But the fact that Paul had been declared innocent by Felix, Festus and Agrippa, because there was no case against him in Roman law, 
may well be part of the reason. It would be foolish to turn the emperor against them by making an unreasonable complaint against a Roman, especially if on inquiry their plots to murder Paul came to light. The Jews of Jerusalem knew that they could not win the case. Since there was no accusation against Paul, the Jews of Rome wished to hear him themselves. After all, the sect was spoken against everywhere. They were not ignorant of the way in which the world was being turned upside down by Paul and other followers of Jesus, as in Acts 17, verse 6. Meanwhile, the Jews used the word sect for the followers of Jesus Christ, in Acts 28, verse 22. This word means a party or division. In other words, they still saw the gospel as a branch of Judaism, however heretical it might be. Same word is translated as heresy in Acts 24 verse 14. So a day was appointed and many came to him in his lodging. No doubt the limited space available would be considerably overcrowded. To these Paul powerfully bore witness to the kingdom of God and the things concerning Jesus from the Lord of Moses and the prophets. The debate continued from morning till evening. It would be a long, tiring day of reasoning from the Scriptures, countering every opposing argument with skilful exposition which would leave Paul's listeners astonished at his understanding and answers, as they did with the young Jesus in Luke 2 verse 47. How remarkably Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled all those aspects of the law and the prophets concerning Messiah, as he himself had explained to Cleopas and another disciple on the road to Emmaus in Luke 22. And how important it is that we should know and become familiar with these matters ourselves. They are the foundation for all our setting forth of the gospel. In fact, of these two aspects of the gospel, the kingdom is always mentioned first, following the example of the Lord himself in Matthew 6.33, Mark 1.14, and so on. This really spells out for us what we ourselves should be preaching. Sent unto the Gentiles. As usual, some were convinced, and others refused to believe. The meeting broke up after Paul had said one word, spoken by the Holy Spirit through the prophet Isaiah concerning Israel's rejection of God's word so that they could not be converted and I should heal them. Paul's citation of Isaiah is significant in that the prophet continues by saying that the unbelief of Israel will not be permanent. Eventually, Israel would be removed far away from the land and the cities left without inhabitant for their unbelief, but a remnant would one day return. Isaiah 6 verses 9 to 13. Israel was to be removed and the land forsaken only a few years after Paul spoke. The same passage is also quoted in John 9 and 12 and Matthew 13. The day is coming when ye, Jews who rejected Jesus, shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God 
and you yourselves thrust out. And many shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the kingdom of God, Christ said in Luke 13, verse 28 to 29. They had judged themselves unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles, says Paul in Acts 13, verse 46. Paul concluded by saying, Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God, the meaning of Isaiah's name, is sent unto the Gentiles, the nations, and that they will hear it. This was a deliberate ploy by Paul to provoke them to jealousy, if by any means I may provoke them to emulation, which are my flesh, and might save some of them. Romans 11, verse 11 to 14. The gospel to Jews had come to an end. No more could be done. Nor has anything been done for them to this day, except in rare and solitary instances. Paul's was a final appeal to the Jews that would not be repeated until there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, their enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, or selection, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. Romans 11, verse 25 to 28. The Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. No animosity is mentioned, just indifference. Blindness or hardness, in part, is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Two whole years in his own hired house. Luke concludes his account by writing that Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house, Miss Thoma, what is hired, probably on an upper floor of an insula, a block of apartments, and received all that came unto him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things that concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. The words, all that came unto him, Remind us of Jesus' statement, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John 6 verse 37 It is obvious from Luke's conclusion that Paul had been released and was a free man living in his own accommodation. The test case for the preaching of the truth as it is in Jesus had been won. The saints were entitled to the same Roman protection as were Jews and those of other religions. Not long before, a law had been passed allowing a prisoner to be freed if no witnesses against him arrived in Rome to press the charges. Consequently, after perhaps 18 months, Paul would have had a brief hearing before Nero and been acquitted. In all, he stayed in Rome for two years, from AD 60 to 62. Rents in Rome were very expensive. How did he pay the rent for his hired house? Did the Philippian Ecclesia help? Perhaps he had received an inheritance from his family. 
we just don't know. What we do know is that he wrote to Philippi, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Notwithstanding ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. He also wrote to them, But I trust in the Lord, that I also myself shall come shortly thereby indicating that his trial was going well, and he expected to be released. And so Luke finishes his account on a high note that confirms for us that our Apostle was released to continue the work begun. And how thankful we can be for Luke's account of how the Gospel went out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth, in fulfilment of the commission given by our Lord in Acts 1 verse 8. Paul preached the gospel with all boldness, we read in chapter 28 verse 31 in the Revised Version. He had asked the Ephesian believers to pray for him, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly, to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Ephesians 6 verses 19 to 20. Evidently those prayers had been answered. Here is another lesson for us. We should pray for those who preach, that they may do it boldly in the face of, not now antagonism, but apathy. And let us not forget Luke's example too. The beloved physician was there with Paul through all his trials and privations until the end, as we find in the second of Timothy chapter 4 verse 11. Did not our Lord promise? He that shall endure to the end shall be saved. Epilogue Although it does not fall within the scope of this study of the Acts of the Apostles, we should mention briefly that Paul's work continued after his release. There are indications in his pastoral epistles of further travels, including a visit to Spain. On July the 19th in AD 64, a fire started in a small shop in the area of the Circus Maximus. The fire quickly spread, and over a period of nine days burned out all but four of Rome's fourteen districts. Nero did not start the fire. He did his best for the people, ordering immediate relief and the construction of temporary accommodation for the homeless. In his rebuilding of the city, however, Nero built himself an enormous and magnificent palace called the Golden House. His extravagance caused malicious rumours to start that the fire had been deliberately lit to clear Rome for Nero's megalomaniac vision. To save himself, he made scapegoats of the Christians. This from ancient Rome, 3 Crisis by Simon Baker. Thus commenced a new round of the most bitter and cruel persecution of the innocent. Paul was either arrested at Nicopolis, as most commentators suggest, from Titus 3 verse 12, 
or he rushed back to Rome to assist the persecuted brethren and was arrested on his arrival. It would be consistent with what we know of Paul that he would do his best to support the brethren without regard for his own safety. Either way, it is probable that being known as the leader of the followers of Jesus, Paul, now in his mid to late sixties, was arrested under the trumped-up charge of ordering the fire, tried and condemned. Second Timothy chapter 4 Almost his last recorded words were, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So Saul of Tarsus, who had become the apostle to the Gentiles, was executed shortly before Nero's suicide in AD 68. As David had said in mourning for another Saul so long before, The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? The second of Samuel chapter 1, verses 17 to 27. Two years later, Jerusalem fell under the assault of Titus. In conclusion, 1. Acts is definitely an inspired record, a masterly account of all things brought to Luke's remembrance by the Holy Spirit. John 14 verse 26. 2. Acts must have given enormous help and encouragement to succeeding generations of brethren and sisters who suffered the bitterness of cruel persecution from state authorities and the church. 3. We should appreciate that, as Jesus Christ laid down his life for our redemption, other men too have hazarded their lives to give us the hope we have. We must value their sacrifice for us and be prepared to do the same for our brethren, though thankfully we are not called upon today to do so in such a dramatic way. Fourthly, Acts opens in chapters 1 and 2 with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It closes with chapters referring to the resurrection of saints. Resurrection is an essential and fundamental truth at the centre of the hope of the Gospel. 5. Acts emphasises the restoration of Israel and the hope of Israel. Our salvation is bound up inseparably with the restoration of the Jews who are still beloved for the Father's sakes. And so all Israel shall be saved. Romans 11 verses 26 to 28. 6. At the centre of Acts is the record of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. The Council concluded that neither Jew nor Gentile believers can be saved by works of law, but only by faith in and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, circumcision in the flesh and keeping the law of Moses is unnecessary. This was a critically important conclusion for us because it opened the way for Gentiles to be saved according to God's purpose. 7. The arguments of Peter, Stephen and Paul before their accusers and the legal authorities are clear, unambiguous, powerful. They spake with boldness, showing a comprehensive grasp of Old Testament scripture. Let us give ourselves to the reading of the word, so that like Paul we're able to say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1 verse 16. And lastly, number eight, above all, the book of Acts shows us what to preach and how to preach it. This is God's way, and we cannot improve upon it. <laughs>